Welcome, friends, to part one in a conversation between myself, Lisa Hunt, and Romy Alexandra, as we discuss a really important subject, and that is how to create psychologically safe learning environments. Romy, what is, from your perspective, a psychologically safe learning environment? Well, I really feel that anyone who's listening could think for a moment about what makes um, spaces psychologically safe or when have you felt it or when have you not felt it? Because it's, it's a shared belief and it's also a feeling that I think so many people can resonate with, even if they don't know all the theory behind it. Two of my favorite definitions when I think about what it really means to have a psychologically safe space, I really love to to use two different definitions that I often refer back to. So one is from Amy Edmondson and her fabulous work uh, and research in this space, which is she defines psychological safety as a shared belief by a group of team members that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking, which essentially means Uh, safe to make mistakes, safe to speak up, uh, safe to share ideas, Um, really a lot of things that come out when we think about general team communication risk-taking. Another definition that I love is from uh, Timothy Clark, which he says psychological safety is an environment of rewarded vulnerability instead of punished vulnerability. Um, And so these are two definitions I constantly see myself going back to, but I do recognize that these are shared beliefs and feelings that anyone, um, you know, can can resonate or can find because we've all, I think it's human nature. We've all been in in environments where we feel that sense of psychological safety and environments where we don't as well. I love that what you just said, Romy, about rewarded vulnerability. I'd never considered that concept before as opposed to like, what's the opposite of that? Punished vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like the environment of shaming where to, when we want to show up as our authentic selves. I just, I love the activeness of that, that it's rewarded. And as we get further into the definition, one thing, Phil, you and I talked yesterday about this, and I'd love to get this question in before we get into sort of bigger picture stuff. And that is when you think, Romy, about running a workshop or convening a group of learners Mm -hmm. and psychological safety, what are some concrete, almost nuts and bolts components of psychological safety that transcend your agenda or who your group is? You know, something from as simple as, your packing list or how you set up the room or like, what are some logistical pieces that contribute to that, that are outside of facilitation? Sure. Great question. So, well, one, I I think that you make a great point is that psychological safety happens in the space, even before people actually enter the space. Mm -hmm. So we have to really be being mindful of how are we even sending out communication in advance of the workshop. So in an online space, this for me is always really important to um, set expectations and encourage people to know like what they are going to be expected to do. This is not a webinar. I'm you know requesting uh, videos and why. What does the research show about why video is important for connection? Um, you know what kinds of things are they expected to do or share there? I think can really help support people. 
Um, and an in-person space, for example, will be very similar things, but expectations and things to bring. Um, but also, you know, I love to do even needs assessment surveys in advance of meeting with any kind of group just to kind of know better what are people feeling walking into this space. For example, like I just finished my first in-person training in two years, which was an amazing, uh, wow, it was such, such a trip. But that was such a key focus was how, you know, how are people coming into this? Are people feeling safe, um, you know, physically? How do we in- encourage their physical safety, um, but also their psychological safety? Are people worried about being close, distant to each other? Um, what kind of fears are people coming in with? Right now, they're, you know, when there's a lot of things going on in the world and we're seeing that on social media, people are also bringing that as well into the space. And so really helping people understand in advance, like this is, you know, what is the purpose of this of this training? What is the purpose of this time and space together and how we want to be present, um, I think can, can really help. And then, as you mentioned, even like the physical space. So I am, and I, I assume all of you are, but we're all big fans of the magic circle, right? What people feel the moment they walk into a physical environment, um, if it's an in-person training. I've seen that those chairs in a circle versus in like theater style already send such a message to participants about, power and privilege and um, who, whose, whose opinions and ideas are most valued there. Is it everyone has, you know, a chair in the circle. So all of our ideas are equally valuable or is there, you know, the trainer or presenter at the front of the room that sends a message instantly. Um, So you're right that there's so many logistical things that can go in as well as the actual activities of what you do and how you facilitate psychological safety in a group. I love the level of detail in that response. And it makes me think I just want to check it with you that that like those components transcend your topic, right? So it might be that you're doing a session on experiential learning for beginners, or it might be that you're doing a parent meeting with student athletes, right? So that idea of expectations, how's the room being laid out? I just, I am so fascinated by how that is not about the specific topic at hand. You know, it, um, it's really about just that that tone. You might never use the word psychological safety in adventure learning, which I know is adjacent to sort of your field. You we play with the concept of mystery a lot and sort of unknown outcomes. And I'm wondering your thoughts around that concept as related to expectations and agenda. So I so, for example, I feel like I can still have a wonderfully adventuresome workshop experience but also know when's my break, when's my lunch, what are the goals? Like, do you have any comments around psychological safety as it relates to that concept of balancing the unknown with the very concrete? Wow. So, so great that you asked this because that is exactly what I was trying to do is balance these pieces last week on on this training Mm -hmm. that I was at. So just to give you some context, so the training was all about um, life design, designing the life you love. But we really wanted to make sure that we were taking a design approach, which is all about, you know, in, in bringing in the psychological safety piece, but really bringing in this iterative design process so that participants felt their needs were being met. And we would at any point every day, we were actually taking in feedback and then changing the design for the next day based on what people really, we felt the group really needed. For me, this is actually such a huge aspect of psychological safety is for people to recognize that they are there as contributors and co-creators of the program and not there just to consume a program that you've created. Uh, Because each person walks in with their own needs and 
the group as a whole also you'll you'll recognize the group but once they meet they they have different needs and so for me it was so important to make sure that people recognize and knew that we were extremely flexible we we welcomed feedback we were constantly update changing the schedule uh, which often meant some people were feeling ah, i need a set schedule right things are constantly changing and so how do you make sure uh, you're addressing that. And so I always like to keep in mind, these are kind of funny, but um, I always use these animals to remind me, this is like a, what we know about uh, patterns in our brain and certain people have certain preferences and others is I always use these four to keep in mind um, the different needs of a group. So one is, I call it the um, the lions. And these are the people who are super goal oriented. And there are people who are going to come in and who are motivated by maybe the learning objectives or particular goals that they have and making sure that they can see or track their progress over the course of, of, a, of a training, I think is important. Another one is the bumblebees because bumblebees are super motivated by structure. And even though in, if you look at a bumblebee hive, it can look like there's chaos. There's actually quite a lot of structure and order happening um, between the bees. And so these are people who, you, they are the ones needing that schedule. They need to have some consistency up front and know the agenda. Otherwise, it's really hard for them to dive into the learning process. Then you have the squirrels, and these are people who are really motivated by uh, creativity and freedom. And they like to be doing lots of different things and have that freedom to do a, a variety of different activities or even be flexible in schedule. And they just they need that, as you mentioned, that mystery, that excitement that comes alive. And then last but not least, you have the penguins and uh, the penguins are motivated by relationships. And so they, it's more important for them who they're working with and how the group is working than actually what they're working on. And so whenever I'm designing or delivering any training, I'm really always trying to keep these four animals and their motivators in mind because this is how people show up. We all show up with our own motivators, our own needs. So when we think about psychological safety, it's making sure there's a place for all of those elements in it, at least for me. Um, also making sure that we are constantly able to, as trainers, flex and adapt the schedule based on the needs that we see of the people right there, not something that we've designed that we, you know, that we're creating for them to consume, but that really is, is tailored to their needs. But then also making sure, right, that the, that balance is there in a way that we don't feel like people feel unsafe because there's so much openness or no structure um, for those particular bumblebees. And so it's I think we did. We found a really beautiful um, way of doing it, I have to say, but we talk about it and I think it's it's OK to talk about it openly. It's actually I encourage people to talk about it openly if you're a trainer and say we recognize these are, everyone has different needs here. We recognize that we need this, but. Incur even I, I really encourage the group to even understand what psychological safety is and different, you know, pillars that make up uh, psychological safety so they could also see themselves as contributors of this of the safe space and not, again, something that the trainers and facilitators have to create and they just get to consume it. This may not be relevant to this podcast, Phil, but I'm just curious, like how we each identify as the four. I, when you said penguin, I was like, that's me. I'm the pe I'm penguin. That's funny. I, I was thinking that as you were saying that, like listeners, you, you're probably already doing that in your head also. Like, yeah. What am I? Am I a lion, a bumblebee, a squirrel, a penguin? I've been talking to several people recently, this notion that the industry that we work in, in any team development group, programming was originally designed 
by extroverted people for extroverted people. Like it feels like the design of the programs, even the ways we're taught, even the activities we run are designed for a certain style, for a certain animal type even of person. It feels like we're on this flip. We're on this momentum of being able to shift the the lens of this. Are you seeing, from your perspective, a positive movement in that direction? And are you seeing it more broadly accepted? Because we bring this up and sometimes you'll get the eye rolls sometimes maybe of like, oh, really? We have to focus on this? What's wrong with the industry? I don't think it's wrong. I think that we're finally adapting to other people's needs. What's your perspective on that as participants come in? Yeah, it's such a good question. So, um, so funny you bring this up because I, in one, some kind of tests I've done, personality tests, I've, I was in the 99th percentile of extroverts. And I thought the first thing I thought was, oh no, I mean, I love who I am. I love that I'm super extroverted, but I thought, oh no, that's going to make it so much more difficult for me to connect with my introverted participants. So I actually went to a leadership training one time and it was one of the, it was about uh, leadership for introverts. And I was the only extrovert who was there. And everyone everyone said, why the hell are you here? I said, no, I'm here because I think it's so important that we learn about these differences and that I can really make sure I'm creating a space that's also conducive for introverts and not just people like me. Um, and it was, I'm at the end, uh, I have to say at the end of the training, everyone said, we're so happy. This one, me, this one soul extrovert was there because we were able to really see our differences and, um, better able to understand both sides. And I think that's actually what psychological safety is all about. Amy Edmondson says that there's four key pillars of psychological safety, uh, diversity and inclusion, willingness to help, um, attitude to risk and failure and open dialogue. And that diversity and inclusion piece covers everything. And we have to be, as trainers and facilitators, we have to make sure that we are creating safe spaces for all different kinds of learning preferences, learning styles, introverts and extroverts, as well as the individuals who show up in the room. Um, You know, you can really affect psychological safety if the group doesn't feel represented. Um, You know, there's, there's so much bias that can come into learning. And so really making sure that, we are designing spaces where people feel not just safe in terms of, you know, the group atmosphere, but safe to be who they are, safe to be different, safe to, to show up um, in a different way. And so I, I really, I think it's a very important topic uh, to bring up. I like, would like to hope that the industry is moving more in this way. It's certainly something I'm very adamant about in my work. Um, and, and so are the people I, I collaborate with, but I still feel there's a lot more room to grow in this space, uh, to be honest. I had a question. I feel like it's a, it's a harder question. I feel like it's maybe an advanced style. I, I consider even as you're talking, these are layers of learning that you're adding on top of already. You've got your existing agenda. You've got your, these are my goals, and then add that layer of, I also have to be aware of this. Can be overwhelming maybe for newer people listening. But how do you, how are you able to maintain that high awareness of empathy towards the participants, even in the process of a program, rather than focusing 100% on the agenda? I feel like that's a very challenging task. Ooh, okay. So much richness in what you just said. So I think a few, so this is is so important, right? I mean, empathy is just an essential skill to have. And I really appreciate what you said, Phil, of 
being able to put yourself in their shoes. That was for me really what I, I just came out of this training experience and I keep using this as the example, but that was so important for me that I realized before I designed the training, I was, you know, doing these surveys, also interviewing people, but also really just even doing visualization exercises to even imagine myself as a participant coming into this, right? Most of us had not been in person together for two years. What were, what could I imagine uh, might be fears people might be having or concerns? Um, I think also these empathy, you know, these we could go into a whole nother podcast episode just about empathy. It's so important, but you know, staying out of judgment, I think is so, well, Teresa Wiseman and Brene Brown, they often did at least four skills of empathy. So it's perspective taking and being able to take the perspective of another person, but staying out of judgment um, because we are meaning making machines. If you have a brain, you have a bias, which also means sometimes as a trainer, we can see somebody maybe on their phone or we see somebody maybe not being engaged or and we can create a really negative narrative around that. And so trying to stay out of judgment and see maybe this activity has made someone so uncomfortable that they're actually using their phone to escape. Maybe it's not about an active, um, you know, how can we reframe the narrative to also uh, see the best in people? Because sometimes, you know, with a negativity bias, we are usually creating more negative narratives. Um, also recognizing the other skills of empathy or recognizing the emotions in others and communicating that back to them. So sometimes I do a lot of even reframing. And if I see something happening in the group, I, again, I think observation skills is essential. You can see in a group when people are really tired and don't want, (laughs) can't take more. You can see when it's time for a break, but then being able to communicate it back to them and saying, Hey, um, and giving more choice, I think is so important. Like I noticed the group, we did this a few times. Like I noticed the group is really low energy. We could do an energizer. We could take a break or we could just stop and pause for the day here. If you feel like you can't take more and participants really value that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what age, even if you're working with youth, the more you treat them like responsible individuals who can make decisions, the more trust I, I believe you build. And so so much throughout the week was not us deciding what we thought would be best for them, but also recognizing, observing, and then asking them, Hey, this is what we're seeing. Would you, what would you prefer to do? And providing that choice in that context was, was really key. One more thing I would say on this, um, based on what you said, shared Phil was also, you know, as we know, we need to, we need challenge. We need to, to learn. We need the sense of challenge and each person recognizes right where their own threshold is to be in their comfort zone, their challenge zone or the panic zone. At the same time, stepping into empathy, I believe that it's, well, maybe this is too big of a word, but I do believe it's actually irresponsible for a trainer facilitator to request that the group does an activity or does something that they would not be willing to do themselves. And this is also something we communicated because the training that we did, there was, you know, a lot of very deep personal self-reflection activities or a lot of vulnerable sharing. And, uh, and it was essential that the participants saw that, Hey, we're there with you. We're going to do these activities with you. And we're talking about personal self manifestos or when we're sharing vulnerably our personal stories, you will also hear from the trainer stories and their personal manifestos as well, because we are not willing to ask you to do something that we're not going to do ourselves. And I think that again, builds so much trust in a group and helps people also find that, that threshold as you were, um, I think asking about before. 
I reflect that um, I've seen facilitators um, who have said, even in the program, like, I'm not going to participate because you're not going to see me again. Like, as if, like, the group is like this group isolated from the individual, and therefore I shouldn't add my input because that would influence, like, this group. But I completely agree, and that's something I always talk about, being an active participant in all the things rather than, like, setting an activity and then going off and messing around with your bag or... That's fine to do those in those moments, but like actually being an active participant. And I think your role modeling of vulnerability is an essential if you want other people that then feel like they can be vulnerable. And it's the same with other activities. If you feel like, well, this could be a goofy activity, or if you're unwilling to be goofy, and I'm doing air quotes there, then how are you? how is the expectation that you're going to expect these people to do it? It's like, oh, so we have to be uh, puppets in your play, but you don't, you're not there playing along. So um, I think that's such, such a crucial thing of being an active participant. If I could, I'd love to stay in this mode of like during the workshop space, like in real time. And and Romy, one of the things I've felt like in the years that I've been facilitating, I've never gotten quite the right zone. And I'm not sure, maybe Phil, you can help me articulate once you realize where I'm going with this, is how do I avoid the trap of assessing the psychological safely according to a certain dominant voice narrative? Right. So, for example, if I'm doing a norms conversation, I'm asking people to brainstorm something about culture. Some people are actively participating verbally. Other people aren't. And I, and I understand that, I, you know, I can get different input in different ways. But beyond that, how do you and I'm using the word trap, like how do I avoid the trap of using a, only a subset of the group to assess the psychological safety? So I think inherent in that activity in that question is also that that like, how do you assess the vibe of psychological safety in any given time. Um, so funny that you mentioned this because this was actually another big thing that came up. And I think the beauty of experiential learning is that you can use games and activities to draw those exact questions out from a debrief, right? We, uh, in this in-person training that I keep referring back to, that was a task. We had a group task. We had apples and oranges and they had tasks to get them from one side of the room to another, but there's all these rules and restrictions and the group, you know, they set a task and they achieved it and everyone was feeling super proud. And then we came back to the debrief and I said, okay, but, um, who here, you know, we were started asking more questions to really assess who felt that the, they really were listening to all the voices in the room. And even though everyone was super proud with the results, what, as we talked about the debrief, they realized that actually it was just the couple people who had the loudest voices or were the most talkative and the group kind of followed in line and listened to them. And then we were able to use that as a way to actually have a beautiful discussion about how we communicate as a group and why the process is so much more important than the results. And bringing this in, it gave such a new awareness to the team that throughout the rest of the week, we were constantly checking ourselves like, wait a second, are we, have we actually listened to all the voices in the room? Or are we just listening to the two loudest voices? Um, and so I think creating common shared language around these topics is so important, which is not something we often do. I feel like sometimes as facilitators and trainers, we feel like we have, we're like behind the curtain and we don't want participants to see. Mm-hmm. I think the more we can actually open up that curtain and reveal what's happening behind the scenes, that's where people really, the aha moments really happen. And participants are really able to understand why we can say like, 
it's important we hear from all voices, but actually why, why is that important? What is the, you know, sometimes I like to throw in what does research and studies show about, Mm. um, you know, radical collaboration and these diverse perspectives coming in and why that's actually going to enhance everyone's learning. Um, so that might be the first thing. And the, the second thing is, is making sure that you're using varied methods. Um, if you're seeing that the debrief is always, we're always coming to one big circle and everyone is sharing one big circle. Absolutely. You are really only creating an environment conducive where extroverts would really want to speak up and share in that space. So I'm always trying to create a lot of varied methods for debrief or even just in activities to make sure I'm getting those inputs such as, Um, Even before we do a a big group brainstorm, asking people to take a moment in silence to even collect their thoughts. Sometimes um, I often am am asking people to put things down on paper or post-it notes and bring it to the front of the room or, you know, online, this can be like a mural, mural, Google Jamboard thing before we share out loud. Um, Then you'll, you'll, if you give that time and space, a lot of introverts will, um, will, you'll hear from more of their voices because they're not asked to be sharing something on the fly. Introverts really gather their thoughts internally. Um, And the other thing is, you know, as I said, a debrief doesn't have to be one big circle group. You can have debriefs and pairs and trios and small groups and have share outs and find different ways that then you're collecting that information so that you know that you're hearing from everyone. And, and even feedback, um, I think this is so important and I don't see that we do enough is we often ask for evaluation and feedback at the very end of a training. And I always say at the end, it's too late because, well, I always value all feedback. I mean, it's great, but at the end, you can't do anything about it. You can't change it. And so making sure you're creating these mechanisms each day where it's conducive for people, whether that's a feedback wall and put a post it there, or it's a special envelope or come to us and we have a conversation and creating different ways that, you know, you're really making sure to hear from the group um, and everyone, not just those loud voices is key. That's so, I love everything that you said. And I, I've got a lot of notes to take on to certain resources that you mentioned. I did a one day training two weeks ago and I don't know where this thought came from, but it came in, it was like planted in my head to scrap our traditional eval. And I said, I want everyone to write down an evaluation question that you would like to answer. And everybody took an anonymous piece of paper. And then I went back to my office and created a Google form. And I think it was telling for me, even the questions that people were wanting to answer, it was about joy and about inclusiveness. And that in itself was an evaluation. So I'm excited in my next five day training to maybe take what you just said and merge it with my concept of maybe each day, a few people can throw a couple questions and then answer into a, into a hat or something. I love that because you're asking again, asking for their contributions and that's so Mm. key, right? What are the questions they want to know? And that can make all the difference. And when you said pull back the curtain around facilitation, I think that I never really thought about that in the concept of like assessing psychological safety or groups norms. And I, and I just, that that makes so much sense, right? I could say we're going to engage in a norms process. Now, one of the things that I'm working toward is balancing, like I just name it. Like what's, Mm -hmm. what's the worst that could happen? I think it only increases the trustworthiness of myself with the participants. I feel like there's a lot of protection of professionalism, quote unquote, air quotes again. And and then there's an also personal ego to asking for assistance and help from the people that have paid for us to work with them. That there's this assumption that if I've had a client pay, then I need to be coming fully prepared 
with all of the answers, that gender needs to be solid, and it needs to maybe be the active voice in the room. But realistically, from a facilitation perspective, we're just creating opportunity and space and hearing other people's perspectives, being able to adapt, being able to change, asking for feedback in the middle of, which I, as, as, I'm, as you're saying, that makes me a little bit cringe because I'm like, oh God, do I really want to hear it? But I, I agree that that's like an important thing for us to be able to hear. Yeah, I feel like there's professionalism, there's ego tied into this, which I, I can imagine are barriers to people wanting to or willing to be able to be more open and collaborative with the people they work with. This this is so important. And um, it's such, I mean, I think we as facilitators and trainers, we must not just accept feedback, but eat it, live it, breathe it. I mean, we have to be so comfortable with it. And you're right. It's ego is so much in place here. And I definitely feel that when I first started my training work about 10 years ago, I definitely was standing in this place of, I don't know if it's ego, but definitely more self-concern or self-protection. Like, uh Oh, what's, what's going to happen if somebody asks me a question, I don't know. Or what if, you know, I have to be here. What if somebody doesn't like it? What is, you know, again, so much power comes in shaping and transforming that narrative from I am serving you um, something for you to consume or we are, this is actually a partnership and we're creating something together. And and the trust that comes from that, there's so much, it's from role modeling vulnerability from really, yes, you, it may be uncomfortable to hear feedback halfway through, but wouldn't you rather know that you did everything in your power to make it a truly valuable learning experience for your participants and really took their needs into, into account. And even, you know, one thing that struck me that I didn't even realize how profound it was in the moment when we designed the session that way. But again, the training that I just came from was all about design thinking approach. And so uh, we actually wanted them to put it into practice. And we said, in small groups, take a real problem that you're having right now in this moment with this training, something that you think that you is a, is a problem. And then let's ideate solutions around this as a group. And it was so powerful because we also were like, what are people going to say? And we got such incredible feedback and solutions coming out from the group from covering things from, you know, the, the room was too cold and we needed to address the heating to um, even saying, oh, we, we didn't always understand the instructions from, from the trainers. And we would, here are some solutions of ideas we think can help us better understand the instructions. Or, um, you know, we recognize the group, we want to get to know each other more. So can we actually organize outside of the sessions even more networking and time to connect and share and learn about each other? It's It was so beautiful to watch the this happen because that click happened where the group really recognized, Hey, this is something that this is a partnership. This is something we're all creating together and seeing people at the end of the day, people just want to be heard and seen. And they just want to know that you're taking their feedback into consideration. So when people shared with us, you know, Oh, about the instructions, or we would like more visuals. We're like this, the next day we tried, you know, I am not the best with graphic facilitation, these things, but I recognize this is a need. And just the fact that the participants saw this was something we were trying to improve, it instantly brought us so much closer because they felt that they were their needs were at least being heard and we were doing everything in our power. And that's the thing, that's that's really what it's about at the end of the day, to help people feel that their their needs are being heard and they're valued for who they are and that we're not just ignoring this feedback. And I think that makes really all the difference. 
So this concludes part one in this conversation. Part two will be coming next week. So be sure to make sure to be sure to make sure to <laughs> be sure to make sure to then add a little bit of more sureness to check out the part two episode next week. Anyway, thank you so much, friends. Stay safe. Stay connected. See you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting. I think I'll the guy. <laughs>